Corot was a great French painter. And whenever he painted those marvelous landscapes, tremulous with mist and light and beauty, he always, always, without exception, he always painted first the sky. And when we come to a subject like this, we would do well to paint first the sky. And by that I mean we would do well to look first at our God, His nature. If we're going to think about, if we're going to talk about prayer and providence, then we must begin by painting first the sky, or in other words, by looking first to that which is highest and loftiest and at the center of the whole discussion, our God and His nature. Because you see, it is the concept of God that determines the practice of prayer. Our practice of prayer is inextricably, inextricably, inevitably bound up with our concept of God. Do you see that? Can you understand that? Our concept of God is inseparably linked with our practice of prayer, and our practice of prayer is determined by our concept of God. And prayerlessness is in reality a kind of practical atheism. And to simply mouth words without any anticipation that a loving Father will hear and will respond to our petitions is a kind of deism. The view that concedes, yes, there's a supreme being. Yes, there is a supreme being, a God, but He's really not involved. He's not concerned. He's inactive. He's not doing anything today. And so I believe at the outset of our study of prayer and providence that we need to look at our concept of God and our faith in God because, my friend, there is no more dynamic concept in your thinking than your concept of God. That is the most dynamic, powerful, effective, and efficacious concept in your thinking. Your concept of God. J.B. Phillips wrote a book some years ago entitled, Your God is Too Small. And he discussed a number of inadequate conceptions. Resident policemen. Parental hangover, perennial grievance. And I'm going to save one and hope that I can remember it in a moment because I think it will be apropos to one point we want to make, an inadequate conception of God. Your view of God will determine your practice of prayer. So let's begin by painting first the sky. Let's begin with those moving and majestic words with which God's Word begins in the beginning... God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved or brooded upon the face of the waters. In the beginning, God. That's where we start. Who is He? What's He like? What are His attributes? What are His characteristics? For us to pray fervently, frequently, effectually, then we'll need to conceive of God as He's pictured in Scripture. A great, a lofty, a biblical conception of God, I'm convinced, 
is necessary to effectual prayer. Hebrews 11, verse 6, without faith. It is impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. It's not enough to believe that he was. It's not enough to believe that in ages past he worked wonders. It's imperative that we believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. I speak to those who believe that God is. I address myself, I'm sure, for the most part, maybe without exception, to those who believe in the existence of God. And yet I want to talk for just a few moments about some of the reasons for believing that God is, even though you believe that. And let me explain why I'm doing that. One time a couple, very active in the work of the kingdom, the gentleman in the family had directed the educational program, the Bible school program of a local church. His wife was very active in the work of the kingdom, and they'd lost a little boy. A little boy who had been the apple of their eye. And the very next Lord's Day, after that seeming tragedy, the very next Sunday, after the losing of that little fellow who'd meant so much to them, there seemed to be, strangely I think to some, a special glow, a special beauty, a special joy and warmth in their hearts. It was very evident. And one little fellow came home from Bible classes that day, and he told his mother, he said, You know what? They really believe. They really believe that about that he died for our sins and that he was raised. Mother, they really believe that. And she said, Oh, son, we all believe that. We all believe that. That's in the Bible. We believe that. Sure, we all believe that. And the little fellow said, Yes, mother, I know. But they really believe it. They really believe it. And so at a time of tragedy, instead of despairing, they are rejoicing in anticipation of what's ahead, and they really believe that He is. And they really believe that the God-man died for us, was buried and raised. Friend, I know you believe, but I want you to really believe, because I believe that affects our praying. Paul writes in Romans 1.20, The invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being perceived in the things that are made, even His everlasting power and divinity or Godhead, so that they are without excuse. You know what Paul is saying? He's saying the idolatry and the immorality of an heathen Gentile world is inexcusable. Paul is saying that the evidence for God's existence, for God's power and deity, that that evidence is so convincing, so irrefutable, so overwhelming, that one who walks in idolatry and immorality or unbelief pursues the course of folly, an inexcusable course. Psalm 14, verse, verse 1, is the fool that said in his heart, there is no God. Paul doesn't fully and formally state what we call the cosmological argument, but he makes us consider it. He calls it to our mind. Back of every effect, there must be an adequate cause. Our universe is an undeniable effect. Back of it, then, there must be some adequate cause. That cause must be eternal. Otherwise, we're involved in infinite regress. Our real possibilities are mind and matter. In the beginning, 
matter created. What's the matter with that? Well, matter had a mater. And matter is inferior to and is acted upon by mind. But God's Word begins with that great statement that satisfies all the demands of the cosmological argument. And is that very truth to which that argument points. In the beginning, God, and there's the great first cause. The great uncaused first cause. The adequate cause back of it all. Possessed of rationality, possessed of mind. We have an argument, the teleological argument, which says that if the effect is characterized by design and order and precision, then back of that the cause must be intelligent, intelligent causation. To illustrate quickly, I couldn't convince any of you that a Webster's unabridged resulted from an explosion in a printing plant. Nobody would believe that. I could talk the rest of the day and couldn't convince you of that. You came up and said, Avon, who made your watch? And I said, nobody made that watch. The materials in this watch suddenly became self-activated. And by the process of spontaneous generation, subsequent development, my watch made itself. You wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't accept it. Maybe you wouldn't verbalize it, but you'd think, I'm in the company of a jabbering idiot. I know better than that. We have evidence for believing that God is. Why? Well, there's the marvelous effect. There's this universe. There's the almost limitless expanse of interstellar space, the vaulted heavens, the stars, all of this moving in remarkable precision. Back of it, then, there must be an adequate cause, and that cause must be characterized by intelligence, intelligent causation. And so men have woven their theories, but the Word speaks answering and satisfying the demands of these great and rational arguments. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The nature of man argues for the existence of God. The anthropological argument growing out of your very nature. The psalmist writes in Psalms 139, I'm wonderfully and fearfully made, and that my soul knoweth right well. You could spend the rest of your lifetime studying simply the human eye. Marvelously, wonderfully, fearfully made. And there is something within this marvelous creation that cries out for communion with the Maker. The very nature of man argues for his existence. Augustine was right when he said, Thou hast made us for thine own, and we're restless till we rest in thee. And I think it's important, I think it's imperative, that when we pray, we realize that we pray to the God who is the omnipotent, the all-powerful, the everywhere present and ever-present God who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. And when we just mouth words and hardly expect anything to happen, if that's not practical atheism, then it's only a step up from that. It's a kind of deism that concedes there's a supreme being, but sees Him as unconcerned and uninvolved. The Greeks had a word for their deities. They called them apatheia. Apatheia. Not perfectly synonymous with our word apathy, but it comes close to that. And the Greek concept of deity was that deity is remote and removed and unconcerned and untouched by humankind. Some of them even had the idea that if the deity could somehow be influenced by man, then he would hardly be superior to man. Now, that's a fallacious argument, but the Greeks had the idea that deity is apatheia. And we know better. Intellectually, everybody here. And all conversant with this Word would tell you quickly 
God is, and not only does God exist, but God cares. God is the God who exists, who is right now. He is love, 1 John 4, 8, and He cares. And yet I wonder. I remember the brother who said, My happy recollection has been prayed for all over the brotherhood, all over the country. Well, that's all right, you know. It's fine to have that, that happy recollection. And before I get too critical... I'm aware of the fact that sometimes, I'm not proud of this, I'm ashamed of this, I was trying to pray and, and here the mind had gone into neutral while the mouth kept on going. And we can have that problem in, in private prayers. But listen to our prayers sometimes. Listen real carefully. You remember what the little maid said to Simon Peter? Thy speech betrayeth thee. We know you're a Galilean. We know you've been with him. What tipped them off? The way Peter spoke. And it wouldn't do any good for me to get up here and try to convince you that I'm from the Bronx and I grew up there and spent all my life there. I wouldn't convince anybody. Why? My speech betrays me. And we pray and our speech betrays us. Because sometimes it's pretty apparent we're really not expecting much to happen. We don't leave much room in our praying, in our planning, in our planning sessions, in our meetings, we don't leave much room for divine activity. We say the same threadbare, worn phrases over and over and over again. And again, lest you misunderstand, I'm directing much of what, what I say to myself, and I know how easily we can lapse into this. Where do we start? We paint first the sky. God is, but not only does He exist, but He is right now. And He is the contemporary God. And I think we need to understand that if we're going to pray effectually. I mentioned the book by J.B. Phillips a moment ago. One of the misconceptions that he listed that I didn't mention a moment ago was grand old man. God has been viewed by some as the grand old man, active in the past, having worked wonders in ages past. Go back to the days of antiquity, the pages of the past and the ages of the past, and you find a marvelous God who works mightily. But somehow He's gone on retirement. Somehow He's kind of like the absentee landlord. Somehow He's like the man who was very vigorous earlier in his life, but now He's retired. That's false. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, for he that cometh to him must believe that he is. Not that he was, not that he will be, but that he is. Here's Moses in the incident of the burning bush. Exodus chapter 3. Whom shall I say sent me? What name shall I give the people? And God said, I am. I am, or I am that I am. And as we noted last Lord's Day in the New Testament, our Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, appropriates that. I'm from above and you're from beneath, and except you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. When the Son of Man is lifted up, then you'll know that I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. John chapter 8 at 23, 24, 28, and later at 51. I am, self-existent, life inherent has always been, and I am right now. Past tense alone is not adequate in talking about God, though He worked wonders in the past. 
Future tense alone is not adequate in talking about the Almighty, although He will always be. But He is the timeless God, independent of time, unaffected by time, the contemporary God, the everywhere present God, but also the ever-present God. And so we believe that He is, and we believe that He is now, right now. It's important that we answer successfully the question, does God hear us now? And I want to stress the us and the now, and I want to emphasize the now, that He is the God of now. You know, I think sometimes the conviction that the miraculous, supernatural, charismatic gifts being limited to the apostolic age in the first century has caused some to believe that since all of that's a thing of the past, and that miracles are to be limited to that period, then God does not today work powerfully and effectually, and that's false and that does not have to follow. The God who is the source and the author of natural law can work through those laws of which He's the source and work powerfully to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. I contend with the view... I, I uh, Let me rephrase that and say what I'm trying to say here. I concur with the view which sees the miraculous charismatic gifts as limited to the apostolic age. I believe that's true. I believe that can be defended biblically. But I do not believe that that means that our God is a God who is limited to the past in terms of His great works. That's not true. He insists, I do not change. Malachi 3, 6, I'm Jehovah, I change not. James 1, 27, uh, James 1, 17, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation, neither shadow that's cast by turning. Friend, if he was concerned about humankind then, he is now. If he could do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think in the past, friend, he can do it now. And so let's not take the God pictured in Scripture as omnipotent and make Him a God who was powerful and effectual only in the past. He is. He is now. He's concerned now. And let me add to this. He is the active God right now. He's working even until now. I want you to go with me to one of the most interesting things in John's Gospel at John chapter 5 where we find a man who had been 38 years in his infirmity, and Jesus healed him. But oh, and I say this a little bit facetiously, our Lord's sense of timing was so bad. The guy had been, the guy had been Ill, for, Ill for 38 years, and Jesus healed him, but he didn't know when to do it. He did it on the Sabbath, of all things. And now they've got an out. They can accuse him of violating the Sabbath law. The thing that really bothers them is he makes himself equal with God. And he keeps talking about my Father and this special relationship. But we've got him. Oh, we've got him. He healed him on the Sabbath day. The guy had been sick for 38 years and he picked the wrong time to heal him. You know what a big part of our Lord's defense is? John chapter 5 at verse 17. My Father worketh even until now. And I work. My Father worketh even until now, 
and I work. That's a major part of his answer to the Sabbath criticism. You want to know why I was busy on the seventh day doing good to a man who had been uh, in his infirmity for 38 years? I was doing that on the Sabbath because my, my father is always busy. And because he is always active and busy, I'm busy on the Sabbath. Friend, when you read of God in connection with His creation, that He rested, don't get the idea that He was passive, inactive. He rested from His creative activity. But the Bible picture is that the God of our being and the God of the Bible is an active God. My Father works until now, and I work. Now, let me put a very simple but profound statement before you. The God of truth, the God of heaven, the God of the Bible is not an idol God. And I know that could be spelled I-D-O-L, but that's not the way I'm spelling it. The God of the Bible is not an idol God, I-D-L-E. The Jews are asking, why in the world did you heal this man on the Sabbath? Jesus said, I'll tell you why I healed him on the Sabbath. My father is working until now. He's always working. And emulating his example, I'm working and doing good. He is not an idle God. He is an active God and always has been. The passages which speak of him resting from his labor on the seventh day have to do with that creative work. But that was never intended to say that our God is a passive or an active God. Somebody asked, well, what's He doing? Well, He's upholding all things by the word of His power. Hebrews chapter 1 at verse 3. He's hearing every cry and every shriek on every battlefield of earth. And He always has. He's seen every tear in every mother's eye. He's knowing every hurt in every human heart. He is the active God. He is not, nor has He ever been, the idol God, and He's not that now. He upholds all things by the word of His power. And He works even until now, John 5, 17. And so we pray to a God who acts. Paul's talking about prayer, probably in context in the assembly. I will, therefore, the supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, for kings and all that are in authority, that we might lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and gravity or godliness and honesty. Somebody says, will that do any good? Should we be praying for President Reagan? What about Gorbachev? What about Margaret Thatcher? What about the many rulers of earth? Would it do any good? Proverbs 21, verse 1. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, as are the watercourses. He turns it whithersoever he will. The God we serve is, and He is now, and He's an active God, and He never has been, and He never will be an idle God, and He is love, 1 John 4, verse 8, and He is very much concerned, and nothing that is of concern to us is foreign to Him. He's that kind of God. And He wants to hear from His children, as every parent wants to hear from His children. I want you to imagine something for a moment. I want you to summon up all your powers of imagination. 
And before I go ahead to elaborate and explain what I want you to imagine, I'd like to remind you of that pre-Adamic statement. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, there was no man to till the ground. No man. Here's this marvelous creation, but no man. Now, that set the stage for what I want you to imagine. I want you for a moment to imagine the instantaneous depopulation of the earth. I want you to conjure up in your mind's eye a picture of our earth and this marvelous universe, God's creation, totally devoid of and completely without all humankind. Not a person, not a man, not a woman. I want you to envision the creation without man. The instantaneous and total depopulation of the earth. And I want to tell you, my friend, the vaulted and almost limitless heavens, the mighty, burdened and fertile earth with the till fields and all the rest, would be worse than folly's wildest dream without man. That's my way of saying that all of this was made by God for man. And man has not a constitutional need in the natural realm, but what God has supplied the answer to that need. And viewed merely as an animal, and he's much more than that. Psalms 8, thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. The Hebrew text says, Thou hast made him a little lower than Elohim. He's a little lower than the angels, or it could be rendered a little lower than God. He didn't evolve up higher than the apes and the amoebas. He was made a little lower than God, but viewed only as an animal. You cannot think of constitutional or natural needs or wants, but what God has supplied them. The world, the universe without man, worse than folly's wildest dream. But place man there and then you begin to see that a loving God has provided amply and abundantly for his every need. Now keep that in mind, because I'm about to ask you a question. Would that God, that God described so simply but eloquently by John as God is love, that God pictured by Paul as powerful, able to do, exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us, Ephesians 3.20. Would that God who provided for man's every need, temporally, physically, materially, and who placed within his heart the instinctive desire to pray, and I would argue that that is instinctive, and I would argue with Ashley Johnson in his book, The Life of Trust, that all men pray. Now, all men do not pray always, but all men pray. And any exception proves the rule. Would He place within our heart that instinctive desire to pray? And would He put there a heart hunger that finds satisfaction only in prayer? And then would this loving, benevolent, beneficent Creator who had provided for every need and placed within us the desire to pray, then turn a deaf ear to our petitions? Who can believe it? Who can believe that the God who has provided so abundantly would not listen with great care and sensitivity 
to the petitions of His children. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. 1 Peter 3 at verse 12. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh, receive it. And he that seeketh, find it. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. What man is there among you? If his son asks bread, will he give him a stone? If he asks fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask Him? Friend, hear me. Be done with doubt, for doubt is powerless. Be done with unbelief, for unbelief is impotent. And resolve that in a full and trusting faith to a God who is, to a God who lives, to a God who lives now, who is timeless and unaffected by time, to an active God who is not an idle God. You'll unbear the petitions of your hearts frequently and fervently in the confident and conscious awareness that God hears and God according to His will and according to His timetable with a view to what's for our best good, particularly our ultimate good, will answer. Now, we want to continue this by talking about the need for prayer and the power of prayer. And if time allows, we want to say something in the later lesson about the practice of prayer. But friend, I want to tell you something. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is in Christ. Ephesians 1, 3. Jesus said in John 14, 6, No man comes to the Father but by me. There is one mediator between God and man, Himself man, Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2 at verse 5. The Word makes it clear that God is not completely oblivious to the prayer of one who might be unsaved, as in the case of Cornelius, Acts chapter 10. But on the other hand, the promise that is made with regard to the petition of a child who is father necessarily demands that we be his child. And the only way to come to him is through Jesus Christ. And so I'm saying today that one of the great incentives, one of the great motivations to being a Christian is that it is in Christ that we have this great spiritual blessing to come before the Father with importunity, with persistency, and before His throne of grace to expect to receive grace and obtain mercy in time of need. And I'm saying, friend, if that's not your high privilege today, I have not the words to tell you how impoverished you are. And I urge you to search your heart and to search your life and resolve to come to that One in whom are all spiritual blessings and without whom we cannot approach the Father. And may I urge all of us, in Him or out of Him, may I urge particularly those of us who are Christians and who are now in Christ, to, with much greater frequency and fervency, Ask and seek and knock, knowing that the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and His ears are open to their prayers.